0: great to be with you uh, this weekend. Um, Football season is back in full swing. If there's any football fans out there, I've chosen to stay away from the college rivalry this morning. It just is too intense, uh, even in our parish here. But uh, if you haven't noticed the great migration over the last two years of people moving from all other parts of the country uh, to the great state of Texas, what this means is you may well be sitting next to a Green Bay Packers fan this morning. Uh, You might be sitting next to a San Diego Chargers fan, or Lord have mercy, you might be sitting next to a Buffalo Bills fan. Can you imagine that? But some of us know the joy of rooting for America's team. In 1975 there was a playoff game between the Dallas Cowboys and the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, In that playoff game, the Cowboys were down. There were only about 30 seconds left, and a Hall of Famer quarterback named Roger Staubach took the ball and threw a bomb down the field to another Hall of Famer, Drew Pearson. And Drew Pearson ended up scoring that touchdown touchdown and they ended up winning that playoff game. And after an interview, Staubach described the play. He said, quote, I just closed my eyes and said a Hail Mary. And after that, a Hail Mary pass in our culture was forever known, listen to this description, as a pass that's thrown under such desperate circumstances that it could only be completed with the help of divine intervention. As we're in this series of learning to pray, what has hit close to home is that many of my prayers could be described as a Hail Mary pass. I have the habit of playing the game as if it depended upon my own strength. Of coming up with a game plan and sort of executing that on my own strength for 59 minutes and like 50 seconds. And then right at the end of the day or right at the end of the game... Before disaster strikes, I throw up a prayer and I hope it doesn't get intercepted. Too often, you and I use prayer like this, not as a daily practice of dependence, not as a new way of life, but really as this occasional cry of desperation. And let me be clear, I believe God hears our Hail Mary prayers. You know, I don't literally mean Hail Mary prayers, but like our cries of desperation, he hears those just as he hears foxhole conversions. Our Lord hears these things. He cares about them. But as the disciples listened to Jesus's conversation and interaction with his father, they found him praying in such a different way, a deeper way, a better way. And so they said to Jesus, Jesus, would you teach us to pray like that, to pray differently to pray in such a way that our own hearts are recalibrated, our wills get aligned with God's will. We want to learn to pray like you, Jesus. And so Jesus gives them this prayer. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. You might call it the Disciples' Prayer. This is how you ought to pray. Now, what's fascinating about this prayer, and many of you, I would bet most of you, if, if I began saying it, you could join me. We, we've it's, it's pervasive even in our culture to this day in the church to be able to say and repeat this prayer. But if you don't know the biblical story, it's hard to understand what's going on in this prayer. This prayer is so rich that it even assumes that that you and I know the story that Jesus is going to spend three years saturating his disciples in. And this morning we come to a new phrase that we want to look at. We've looked at the fact that it starts with our Father. That was the first week. And then last week, Father David looked at, hallowed be your name. May your name be kept holy in our lives. And today we come to this phrase, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean to pray that? God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Um, In a word, we're going to look at these two phrases, and here's here's the first phrase. Uh, This first phrase deals with a deep understanding of hope. The hope that God's kingdom has broken and is breaking in. What did Jesus mean, though, when he said kingdom? This is a huge question to ask. What did Jesus mean when he said kingdom? And and what did his disciples hear when they heard Jesus say kingdom? And what in the world do we today when we say your kingdom come? What do we think of? This is really worthy of a whole series in and of itself. You got to know this was Jesus's keynote for three years. He taught the disciples about the kingdom of God. His teaching ministry was summed up in a word as God's kingdom come. So I'm going to say a few things about what it's not and then about what it is. And this isn't really like me, but this is going to be six different descriptors. Are you ready? Here we go. First of all, it's it's an acknowledgment that things are not as they should be. To say, God, your kingdom come, is you and I acknowledging that this world is not as it should be. There shouldn't be the atrocities of war between empires. Uh, communities and families should not get broken up by conflict or cancer, or car wrecks. It shouldn't be this way. What we know is that all of creation is groaning, groaning, Romans 8 says. And this cosmic brokenness that we see when we say, thy kingdom come, we're joining with God in saying that things are not as they should be by saying, we want your kingdom to come. And, and things are not as they should be, not only out there, somewhere, but things are not as they should be in here, in me. There's this disordered life that we observe, I mean, the doom scrolling on your news app that we can all participate in at any moment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the same, if we look closely at our own hearts, apart from Christ and his grace at work within us and restoring us, things are disordered in here. And to say thy kingdom come is to both say both in me and out there that your cosmic rule and reign, we want it to come, Lord Jesus. It's an acknowledgement that things are not as they should be. It is not, so a few things that it is not. I, got, I have this really difficult task of trying to summarize three years of Jesus' teaching ministry in like the next 10 minutes. That's not really my task, but would you let me try? It's an acknowledgement that Things aren't as they should be. Secondly, it's not your best life in this world now. When we say, God, we want your kingdom to come, we're not saying, "Um, in my kingdom. It's not my kingdom. This is incredibly countercultural to pray this way. One of my favorite illustrations of this is the master plan suburban community. There's a lot of them in our metroplex. And, and what, there's a, there's great marketing slogans when they try to allure now people from all over the country to come and buy a house in this master plan community. One of my favorite ones is just, just a few miles from here. I understand it's part of Louisville, Texas even, and it's, it's a community called Castle Hills. Now, if you live there, don't raise your hand right now, but, but just, and I'm not poking fun at you. This is at us and our culture, all of us, me included. The tagline on the billboard said, for every kingdom, a castle. What an incredibly clever marketing slogan. It it strikes a chord deep within every human being. You and I were created by God to co-reign and rule. But the problem is because of sin, things get disordered and we become the kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. And we begin to live a life, particularly in the suburban context of North America, as if all of the world revolves around my nuclear family and my little mini castle. And the new drawbridge is the garage door. And instead of the household being a place of formation into Christ's likeness, the domestic monastery, or a hospital for saints and sinners alike, a place of hospitality, this drawbridge closes and it becomes this this little mini kingdom for lonely narcissists. When we say, God, we want your kingdom to come, we're saying that there's something different between my little world and God's cosmic rule and reign, and we want your cosmic rule and reign to come. What did the disciples think of when they heard Jesus talk about the kingdom? It's an acknowledgment that things are not as they should be. It's not just my best life now in this world, but it's also not a national kingdom or even a geographical space. The early disciples, um, they, they, the term kingdom would have been more common in their vernacular. Uh, the idea of empire was more common for them than it is for us North Americans in the 21st century. When the disciples heard this, they could hearken back to Uh, a Jewish imagination of, of epic kingdoms that had risen and fallen, and Egypt would have been one of those. Babylon would have been one of those empires and kingdoms. In the modern day, as Jesus was teaching this, they were under the reign of the Roman Empire, the Roman kingdom. And as they heard this idea of kingdom, we know because of things they say later on to Jesus that there was a way in which they had kind of understood his idea of kingdom to yes mean God's rule and reign, but God's rule and reign for us and our national identity. That's how they heard it. It was somehow totally bound up for them initially in the hopes and expectations of Israel. The first apostles had it tied up with their national life and we've seen tremendous harm be done in multiple cultures, in multiple ages when Christians begin to fuse a national story with God's cosmic rule and reign, bad things happen. It's not just, it's not at all a nation-states story. It is God's cosmic rule and reign. The idea of an administration, I think, is something we can grasp. Um, that there's a new administration in the kingdom and in the country and that's God's, and Jesus taught about it. So it's, it's not those things. Well, what is it? It's God's cosmic rule and reign. For Jesus, when he began his ministry, teaching ministry, he said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then he began to give evidence of this kingdom that had come, and it was both evidence given in deed, so the blind receive sight, The sick were healed. In heaven, there there is no sickness. And so Jesus begins to inaugurate the kingdom and show the ways in which God's kingdom is at hand and has begun among you. And it was indeed, it was physical, and it was also in word. Jesus is proclaiming a a message, the story of the gospel. It's both in word and deed, and it's this all-encompassing rule and reign of God. It was the main thing he talked about. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, especially Matthew, what you have is just the summary of life in the kingdom. You've heard of the Sermon on the Mount. What is that? That's kingdom life being described. And it's, it's so different than the way our world works. God's rule and reign. Just to say a few things, the poor in spirit find themselves to be found and The the merciful, those who hunger and thirst for God, those who are marginalized by other kingdoms and empires, they're on the outside, find themselves to be on the inside of God's kingdom, welcomed in. And Jesus says, we heard in the Acts reading, but really turn to many epistles. And in chapter one of Colossians, it says God's reconciling all things. In Ephesians 1, that God is putting all things under his feet. In Revelation 1, God is making all things new. This means that God's kingdom in Jesus, both in his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, he has broken in his rule and reign. And now we're seeing the beginning of all things being made new. So where does the church fit in with this? Just to end this little section, the church is not the kingdom. The church is to be an instrument, a foretaste, a sign of God's kingdom, both in word and deed, but, but we're not the kingdom. And I'm sorry, but there's a lot of clergy and a lot of Christians who often end up kind of fusing God's cosmic rule and reign with their little, little community. Parachurch organizations can do this too. Uh, Local churches can do this where they begin to see like the one need that they're meeting is the the expression of all of God's rule and reign. And because the church right now is struggling in so many parts of the world, but especially in North America, it can get preoccupied with, with how to save itself instead of joining God's kingdom work in the world. Lastly, when we talk about God's kingdom, there's this hope. Things are not as they should be. But God God has acted in time and place through Jesus Christ. And we have this deep sense of hope that God's rule and reign has come and and will come. And this is the last thing. It's both a present reality and a future reality. It's the now and not yetness of God's kingdom. It's a present reality, but it's growing in fullness. This might help. It's like we're in between D-Day and V-Day. Have you ever heard it put that way? things are being made right, and they will one day be made wholly right in the future. And so we're in this awkward in-between space. And this is part of the reason our culture doesn't know what to do with us, is we're pointing to the rule and reign of a God who has all power and all might, and yet there's still this brokenness in the world, and the, the nowness and the not yetness of the kingdom is kind of confusing, isn't it? But we know that God is bringing and will bring his kingdom on earth. So thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So in heaven, heaven there is no sickness. And so every tear will be wiped away. Every hunger will be satisfied. And so what this means is that God's people in this earth, on this earth, are not afraid to go to places of tremendous suffering and heartache and to be witnesses of another kingdom to point to a God who wants to break into the brokenness and make all things new. And just like Jesus, we do it in both word and deed. We Christians, throughout time, there are times where we fall flat on our face and we do a terrible job of being witnesses of the kingdom. And then there's other times throughout history where you would look back and the whole system of health care can point to the Christian missionary movement Christians who believe that God cared about suffering, and so they would start hospitals in places of desperation, of desperate need, that the gospel of the kingdom is both to be physical and there's a message proclaimed. It's, it's have you met the Savior, the Messiah? Christians throughout ages believe this already, not yet, means that we point to Jesus in both word and deed. It's holistic. I love what the great Anglican John Stott said about this. It's the two hands of the gospel. That wasn't quite his language. He once said, it's the two wings of a bird. With the one wing, the bird cannot fly. It needs both to take flight. It's both word and deed. We have a message to proclaim, and there's a kingdom to embody. And so we can go to places of great need, of great suffering, in our present life, anywhere in the world, including here in Denton County, and ask, what is not as it should be in this world? And God, where are you calling me to be a witness of your kingdom that's breaking in? And this, there are just hundreds of ways in which we can put our hand to that plow. We can't do everything, of course, but we must do something to be witnesses of his kingdom. Now, thy kingdom come, on earth as it is in heaven, this cosmic rule and reign of God, there's this deep sense of hope in the heart of every child of God that God wants to break in. Now the second phrase, not my will, but your will be done. I've got to be a little more brief on this. Not my will, but thine be done. This was what we heard read in the gospel reading this morning. As far as I can tell, it's the only phrase that we get to observe Jesus actually praying in his own life. We heard it read from Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, Jesus is where? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, About a half dozen of us are going to get to be there in one month, literally. Uh, It's a location that was easy to identify um, on the outside of the old city in the garden. And he gets down on his knees and he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me If there's any way to do this other than this, let it pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And so, if the first word about God's kingdom is hope, the second word that I'd want to share with you is there's a struggle. There's a struggle, and that struggle uh, was first cosmic, and thankfully, because of the faithfulness of our King Jesus, um, he won that struggle. But that struggle is also present in you and I because now we need to join him in saying, Not my little will, not my little kingdom, but your will be done. You see Jesus in this garden moment that we heard read. He's devoted his life to to the people around him. They're asleep, one has betrayed him. The guards aren't there yet. It's dark, it's nighttime. And I want you to go with me in that scene for a moment and realize that at at this moment in time, Jesus had options. He's not bound. Uh, the guards have not arrived. The 12 disciples, one of them's betrayed him. The other 11 are totally asleep. And it's just him and the Father. And he's saying, if there's any other way. Now, this last week, I w- God ministered to me in helping me to see the humanness of Jesus, that he has to go and pray this prayer on the same night three different times. If you've ever come to a crossroads of your own plans and God's plans, your will and God's will. Jesus knows what you're going through. Here he is in the darkness of night, alone, and he says, not my will, but your will be done. This is not just a once and done prayer. It's for us, it's a lifetime of prayer, saying, God, not my plans, but your plans. And you see, Jesus prays it three different times. Really quickly, uh, to end on this is kind of a comical closing to a sermon, but um, have you ever heard of the second Adam? Jesus, King Jesus is referred to as the second Adam, and that is such a strange way of referring to Jesus. It's not like a term that's real common. Like, I didn't grow up as a kid learning about Jesus as the second Adam, but but where does that come from? Well, just really quickly, because I want us to see that the first Adam is indeed the Adam in the garden, the Adam with the Adam and Eve. And his prayer was not the prayer of the second Adam. His prayer was, my will be done. And it all had to do with the tree. So here he is in, in the garden, and there's sort of freedom and he makes the decision to choose his will over God's will. And because of that choice, because of his unfaithfulness, all of creation begins to experience the suffering. But the second Adam is Christ. And what does he do? It's, it's Again, it's in relation to a tree, but it's the cross. And he prays, not my will, but your will be done. And this is, this is the inbreaking of God's kingdom. This this is not the beginning, but part of the inbreaking of God's kingdom, where we now get to join the work. He breaks us free to be able to pray, God, your will, not my will, be done. I can recall several key moments in my life. Jen and I, this last week, were reflecting on like the big moments where we had to get on our knees either individually before we knew each other or together as a family, and we had to say, okay, we really want this to happen and we're not sure if that's what God wants us. So, God, we come before you. We surrender this. Sometimes it was big career moves. Um, sometimes it was geographical moves, uh, big moments of change that we learn to pray in those moments God, not our will, but your will be done. But it's a mistake if you think it's just the grandiose big things. It's in, it's in the everyday life. How you spend your life is how you spend your moments, your minutes of every day. How you spend your life. And learning to pray, God, I don't just want my will to be done, I want your will to be done. And because he said yes in that dark night in the garden, it opens up this light for you and me to join him in that prayer. George Herbert, a great poet, and he once said, For my heart's desire unto thine is bent, I aspire to a full consent. Have you learned to pray this prayer with Jesus? God, I want your kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. This means that you have to invite him into your own darkness. Have you invited his kingdom cosmic rule into the areas of your life that nobody else knows, that you need to experience healing? It starts there. But it doesn't stop there. It also involves you saying, God, into the darkness of this world, would your kingdom come and reign? The the phrase is, he is making all things new. It's not just my own darkness. It's the darkness of the whole world. Let your justice come. Are you praying for his kingdom and his will to be done around you? Prayer begins with, Father, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you show us a better way than just throwing up these these cries of desperation every now and again? Would you show us how to be aligned with you in the day-to-day? How to start our Monday morning saying, God, I want your kingdom to come on earth. How to start our routine of every single day with asking that your will be done in our lives. Jesus, would you break into our normal routine And open our eyes to see your cosmic rule and reign. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.